0: and a resounding good afternoon peace and grace everyone how are you on this fabulous fabulous friday afternoon welcome once again to WHGE 95.3 FM the one and only black owned black operated news information station in the city of Wilmington we are the first no matter who comes next we are the first Thanks to Harmon Carey. And so my name is Rochelle Wilson and I will be your hostess for this next 45 to 55 minutes. Joining me is another WHGE uh, journalist. I welcome with me today in the studio, Mr. Pat Gibbs. Peace and grace, Pat. Good afternoon. And so today is we are honoring the oral history, the East Side Pride, the reasons to be proud of the great heritage and history that has come from the East Side of Wilmington, Delaware. We can't thank you enough for joining us. Sit down, grab your popcorn, and get ready for the ride. It's going to be a good one, folks. Today in the studio, we have with us The one and the only Mr. Larry Williams. Good afternoon sir. Good afternoon to you and thank you for having me. Yes thank you so much for being here. So I want to get right into the crux of our oral history. Now it's my understanding that you are a saxophonist. So my first question is the who. Who are you sir? Tell us a little bit about who you are and your connection your connection to the east side of Wilmington, Delaware.
1: Well, I've been a saxophone player for well since I was 14, really. Um, I played in a lot of R&B bands. I played in jazz ensembles and, and things of that of nature. You know, I also do a little composing and arranging. And as far as the east side goes, well, I've been, I've been pretty much a resident for the last 34 years or so, although really going way, way back. The first home I can remember before we moved to, to the south side of town was just a couple blocks down on 1019 Lumber Street.
0: Okay, and so in, in doing that, what was it like then for you? I mean, coming up, what what was the era that you came up, the 19 what? In the 60s, really. I,
1: 19- was born, I was born in the 50s, but I came up in the 60s.
0: Okay, so things were very different oh, then than they oh, are now. Oh, very much so. So, maybe I could leave my door open then you could okay. you 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 could
1: i mean it was a, it was a completely different time you know and musically, well, there was a lot of a lot of music happening. there were a lot of bands around, and well, music was just all over the place.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: could hear you could say, "Just walk down any one of these streets," and you would hear music coming out of people's homes either through radios or record players. Or you might hear music coming out of out of the juke from the jukebox of the local bar, wherever it happened to be. But you know, it was all, it was a it was a much livelier
2: time.
0: Yes, and and you met Pat. How did you meet Pat? So you guys are friends. Uh,
2: you... Yeah, we met on on, on the radio. radio. On the radio. Huh? Yeah, we met on the radio mm-hmm. on even Stephen Bob time. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yep. Okay, and so you know, were, were you playing an instrument as well, Pat? Did you, How did you get into that, that whole saxophone vibe? And- uh,
2: Well, no, I'm a jazz fan and somewhat of a historian. Um, I met Larry, like I said, on Even Stevens' bop time, and we uh, immediately connected because of my love of jazz mm-hmm. and my, compared to Larry, minuscule knowledge of jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we, we just hit it off, and Larry seemed to enjoy my broadcast on the radio, and of course I enjoyed him, learned a lot from him. And uh so you know that's how we connected.
0: So what was one of the most poignant or powerful moments that you or lessons that you learned from, from Larry? Ooh. I that, know there's probably a, a multitude, yeah, but you yeah. can only give one for this for this segment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I would have
2: to say what most impressed me about Larry was his his knowledge of the music, not just jazz, but classic R&B. And I'm talking R&B from, what, the 40s? Yeah. Yeah, from the 40s on, you know. And uh, so that was, you know, one of the things that just really stuck with me about uh, Mr. Williams. Of course, another thing is the tradition that Larry comes from, and i like to mention that. You know, um, for instance, who, who, why the saxophone, Larry?
1: It was, <laughs> well, I started out as a clarinet player. Okay. You know, but um, at the at the time, well, I, when I was around fourteen or so, well, there there were bands around. Like I would well, I, one in particular I'll say was the the Four Souls band with Keith Smith, Kenny McAllister, uh, Johnny Bell, and all those guys, hmm. and. Uh, bass player a friend, God, that I got started with, Dave Gell. We used to go down to Johnny's house on Bennett Street and watch them rehearse, and then we'd walk back to South Bridge saying, You know what, we got to start, start a band ourselves. So mm. that particular year between eighth, eighth grade and ninth grade, I got a chance to have a tenor saxophone and take it
0: home for the summer.
1: Mm. And I haven't looked back since. I, heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I heard It, it
0: kind of just um, grabbed a hold of you. Well, yeah. what, what is it about the sax that's so that just blends and merges with your soul? Well, it's well.
1: There are so, there are quite a few members of the family, but the tenor saxophone, for at least for me, is the most human of the family. Human? I mean, you, you Well, I, uh, by that I mean you can get all sorts of human emotions out of that horn. Oh, really. okay. You, know, if you listen. If you listen to certain people play, like if you hit listen to John Coltrane play, or you hear Lester Young, or you hear Farrell Sanders, you hear all these
0: sounds coming out, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just raw emotion. you heard that? Wow! I heard that. I wish you had brought it along. You could um, just give the audience just a little tidbit, a little taste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Where so, did you
2: learn to play?
1: Well, I, well, actually, school. School? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, like I said, I, I started on clarinet in the third grade, mm-hmm. and so, and I played clarinet from third grade through eighth grade. Starting in ninth grade, I switched over to bass clarinet and was playing saxophone at the same time, too. Mm-hmm. But see, but no, I guess another thing, too, is hearing saxophone players on, you know, a lot of those R&B records, you would always have that sax solo in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was just something that just sounded good to me.
2: Okay. You know? I heard that. I heard that.
0: <laughs> so, we've got the why. We know Why? because it's human and it makes you feel really, it's just smooth with you, you know. We know who you are. We know the time and the era, Uh, but what we don't know is what it, what has it done for you in the transformation from those years of the 60s and you having knowledge of music from the 40s and all the way even up to today. Where are you in that genre now? Where are you in that journey? Well, basically, I'm still trying to play jazz.
1: <laughs> that's what. I, that's that's really what I'm still trying to do. Although, I have to admit, you can't just say the word jazz now, if you because nowadays everything's been broken down into genres and subgenres and sub-subgenres. So you really have to be crystal clear as to what you're talking about. When I was coming up. If you said the word jazz, people instantly knew what you were—they knew what you were talking about and they knew who you were talking about. It's a little bit hard to pinpoint now because now you have things like real jazz, smooth jazz, all you know. <laughs> and all, at one point, we even had something called acid
2: jazz. Yeah, I remember that. Which
1: I never quite figured what that was. <laughs> you
2: know, I never figured that out uh, either, Larry. Um, I want to ask you uh, about your teachers.
1: Oh, well, the first one, my elementary school teacher was a gentleman by the name of Clinton B. Grant. In junior high school, right over right over here at Bancroft, I had a gentleman named William Bowie and a lady named Doc, Dr. Mildred McGowan, who was the first one who... Inspired me to take up a pencil and try to scratch notes on paper. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'm yeah, Was started. was
0: Boise in there anywhere? He yeah,
1: he comes in a little bit later. Okay, he come, he comes. Yeah, Boise comes in just a little bit later because around the time that I started taking lessons with him, I also met Mr. Hal Schick who was running the um, the Woman Music School Summer Jazz Workshop. I spent four summers there, hmm. and he used to bring in a lot of you know, big name people. Mm-hmm. And I saw I saw people like Zad Jones, mm-hmm. Dr. Donald Byrd mm-hmm. Herbie Hancock, mm-hmm. Pepper Adams, you know.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: oh, oh quite a few, quite a few people. Okay. Yeah. All right. What a rich, rich, rich history. Mm-hmm. Rich history. And so when you talk about all of these various different types types of jazz, you caught my attention when you said real jazz. Now, if I'm not mistaken and please correct me isn't it black people that started the whole jazz thing? Wasn't that us? And then it sort of blossomed yeah, from yeah, there. Could yeah. you give us a little history on that? Well, that,
1: well, that you take that back, you could probably take that back to Africa. You know, <laughs> you could, I, I'd say probably Africa is the cradle of the whole thing. And when you know, when they came to America, you know, they just brought all that. They brought their rhythms and their melodies with them. But really. What we call jazz, I think, probably starts in the city of New Orleans. At least that's where the first name people came from. King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, and people like that. And they brought their music from New Orleans to Chicago and to New York. And then the music evolved into into what you call big band swing. Which, which really, a lot of people like to say that big band swing started in the mid '30s with Benny Goodman, but the music had been really going on for at least a decade before then, with Fletcher mm-hmm. Henderson, Duke Ellington, and people like that.
0: Oh, okay. You know, and and it just and it just evolved, it just kept evolving from there. Glad you clarified that because I was one of the people who thought it started in the '30s. So mm-hmm. thank no, it, you. No, it had been going on before then. Mm-hmm.
1: Although, although I, it, it's sorry to say that the first jazz record was not done by a black person.
0: Tell us about that. (laughs) (laughs) I see the look on Pat's face. (laughs) If if you can see his face right now, (laughs) you are listening to WHGE, today's edition of East Side Pride with Mr. Larry Williams. And so, tell us about that. Uh, Just tell us what what you can... Let me give you a little backstory on that. Actually...
1: It could have been the other way around, because the Victor Recording Company approached a cornet player by the name of Freddie Keppert and asked him if he wanted to make some records. But he declined, and his his reason for declining was that he he said he didn't want his ideas on record for other people to steal. And so he said, really, he did eventually get on record, but it was like around 1923 before he did. The first jazz record came out, came out by a white group out of New Orleans called the original, they called themselves the original Dixieland Jazz Band. <laughs> I happen to have a 78 copy of that first record. It was called the Livery Stable Blues. It was made in 1917.
2: And from what I understand, it was really hokey. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. yeah
1: it yeah. was. Basically, if you listen to the record, basically it's just instruments trying to imitate barnyard animals. hmm.
2: hmm. hmm. hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, well, let's talk about the early days of the music here in Wilmington. I want to, um, I want you to address a statement that was made by Maurice Sims. Maurice Sims said that jazz only came from three places, but it went everywhere else. Yeah, you ever I've heard, heard Maurice say yeah,
1: that? Oh yeah, I've heard that.
2: Okay. Yeah. And those three places:
1: New Orleans, Kansas City, Wilmington. <laughs> and if you ever asked him about well, well, what about Chicago, and New York? He said, "Well, those are the places the jazz went to," which is wow. pretty, which is pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. That's pretty accurate because when the musicians left New Orleans, the first place they went to was to Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, they, and the young white kids in Chicago like Big Spider Bag and people like that would flock to see them, and they started playing the music.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, did you say Kansas? Did you say Kansas?
1: Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas City, Missouri.
0: So the three places are where again?
1: <laughs> well, according according to Maurice, New Orleans, Louisiana, Kansas City, Missouri, and here. Kansas City, Missouri, and Wilmington, Delaware. Mm-hmm. Although although really we don't have a lot of documented history uh, on on the people that played there. I mean, we got some names of people that played here, mm-hmm. like like um, Chick Smith, the Chick Smith band. Well, Chick Smith is the father of tennis saxophone, Ronnie Smith.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, and uh, there was Claude and Artie Wells band, and um, well, with their time, of course, I got a, I became friends with their tenor player Coleman Allen, in, in later years.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know,
1: mm-hmm. but these people, these, and there was a, really the first person I suppose from Wilmington that, that was documented on records was a lady. Yeah, really? Yeah, Daisy Winchester.
0: A woman power. I have to speak <laughs> up for that. I have to speak up for woman power. Say her name, Daisy Winchester. Daisy Winchester. Well, we was, honor you. Well, she was a
1: ra- actually she was a radio artist. She she had a little she had a little speakeasy on a on a east side street that doesn't exist anymore. Down I guess down on off, off of Walnut Street. I said, but I think between fourth and fifth, they called it Clinton Street. You ever heard of that one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's not there anymore. Yeah. But yeah, she she used to come on. Uh, what was it? W I think she went came on the radio. W W I L M. She like had a half an hour hmm. radio show. Hmm. Well, in 1940, she got a chance to record, and she did one side of a record, a side called "You've Got to Go When the Wagon Comes," and she was backed up by an up and coming band.
2: Ended up by Louis Jordan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about that? Uh, uh, for a lot of people that may not know, I, Louis Jordan, I would say was, mm, uh, I almost want to say like the Michael Jackson of his time because of all the videos he made. But even that's not really accurate musically. Well, musically, well musically, I think he
1: was. He's really what you might call the godfather of what eventually became rock and roll. Hmm, hmm. And say his
0: name again? Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan. So he's the real, authentic, oh, yes. historical father of rock and roll. Yeah, well, he, and he was the biggest black
1: artist in the 1940s. Hmm, hmm. He, sold, he sold more records than anybody. Hmm, hmm. At one of his records, Chew 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 Boogie, was number one on the rhythm and blues charts for four and a half months. Wow. The only other record to equal that feat was Joe Liggins' record, The Honey Dripper," which came out the year before.
2: Hmm, how about that? How about ah. that? Now, I know Louis Jordan was very influential.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah and very much so.
2: Could you name at least one artist? that would probably stand out to people that Louis Jordan influenced.
1: Well, I'll give you James Brown.
2: Thank you. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> you yeah. were biting for that answer. You know that. knew well, the I answer already. I could also have said Chuck Berry, too. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Because <laughs> Chuck Berry, you listen to the humor in Chuck Berry's music, he got that straight
2: from Louis Jordan. How about that? How about And that?
0: and And Wilmington, Delaware, right here on the east side, I mean, what what were we doing? Like, did we have a speakeasy here? You said that, that Daisy had a speakeasy. Well there, pl- well,
1: there were plenty. There were plenty of speakeasies and plenty of little. There were plenty of taverns and clubs, and you know we're we're about. But there were places for for
0: black people. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we're actually we're about two and a half blocks south of where one of the one of the big places in this city was. the Club club Baby Grand it was about two and a half blocks north of here it sat right on the corner of 9th and what is today called Clipper Brown Walk but back then it was Poplar Street wow Mm -hmm. and a lot of people a lot of named people came and and, and played there in fact um, the organist Jimmy Smith made a live album there
0: in 1956 Hmm. for Blue Note how about that that no? is amazing history right here in Wilmington. Yeah, yeah. Who are some of the artists? Some of the big
2: artists that came here during those days, uh, especially during the days of swing and bebop.
1: Well, Louis Jordan came through, of course. Dizzy Gillespie was here. Dizzy Gillespie played on 12th Street up at 12th Street at the Temple. Really? <laughs> yeah, D- yeah. Dizzy yeah, Gillespie yeah. was here. Yeah, 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 was yeah, here. Yeah. In fact, um, in fact, there's an interesting story that. When he came with his band, one of his trumpet players, I think it was Betty Harris.
2: Yes, the little Betty he, Harris. Little, little
1: Betty didn't didn't make the gig. Right. And um, and Dizzy needed a trumpet player. Well, Dizzy and Boise were friends. They because they go back to their days in North and South Carolina, and and so Boise told him, "Don't worry, we got somebody for you." And they went out and got Clifford Brown.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Clifford,
1: and Clifford came and Clifford came in. And Clifford played the music, and Jesse was flabbergasted. Uh, uh, another historian, Dave Clark, uh, has said on the on the, um, on the um, video, mm-hmm. Brownie speaks. He says this, he said this. He said, "How in the hell could somebody play trumpet that
0: good, and I didn't know about it?" <laughs> how about old well,
2: well, was, was Clifford at that time? And,
0: okay. and what was this? I want to hear the end of the story. Okay. <laughs> well, I, well, well, that's pretty much it. Clifford
1: must have been about nineteen, I guess, at that time. Hmm. Hmm. You know, that's was, the yeah. early
0: days of his of his career. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, his career really wasn't that long. Sad to say,
0: it is very sad to say. But did he get a chance to? You know, commingle some more with Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, oh yeah, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm sure he. Yeah, I'm sure that he did. Well, I mean, he got to meet practically everybody.
1: You know, he he did a gig. He did a gig in Philadelphia with Charlie Parker, and Parker took him aside and said, "I don't believe it. I hear what you're
2: saying, but I don't believe it." How about that? <laughs> How about that? Who was the first big band that he was employed by?
1: Well, the would well, probably be Lionel Hampton.
2: Mm-hmm. Although
1: although his first although the first people he really gigged with was a little band called Chris Powell and Blue Blaze. Okay. Because that's where he made because that's where Clifford made his first records. Mm-hmm. You know, I read and I come from Jamaica, but they weren't they weren't really what you call a quote unquote jazz band. They were they were a group that sort of just sort of cut right in the middle. They mm-hmm. were they were somewhat between jazz and R and B. Like there were a lot of players that were back then. Mm. And they had they made several several records. Of course, later on they went into a mambo thing. Mm. But that was, a, that, was after <laughs> Clifford, that was after Clifford left, mm. and then Clifford then Clifford, um, in the uh, late 50s, 50, summer fifty three, he spent some time with Lionel Hampton, and they went over to Paris and Stockholm, mm-hmm. and they did a lot of under the cover recording over there. Mm-hmm. You know, do we so. have
0: those recordings? Oh yeah! So, yeah those yeah! Oh, okay. oh
1: yeah! All those, all that stuff was made of, Has been reissued several, several times. The well, Session. with
0: people stealing our music and our heritage, I just didn't know if we were able to retain his. His recordings from Paris.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, all that, all that stuff, all that stuff. Because that, that, those were things that Gigi Grace did. Well, Gigi Grice was in the band. Mm-hmm. Quincy Jones was in the band. Quincy Jones was part of the trumpet section. I mean, that. Well, Hams trumpet section was Clifford Brown, Art Farmer, <laughs> you know, Quincy Jones, and Benny Bailey. Wow!
2: Wow! Powerful <laughs> <laughs> a trumpet section! Right? What a trumpet section!
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that was yeah, that was quite a trumpet section. Mm-hmm. It's just too bad that they didn't really do a lot of the arrangements that Quincy and. Um, and and Gigi did, mm. you know. And speaking of Gigi Rice, I, I got a chance to meet and play with his brother, Tommy Rice, who was also a saxophone player. Oh, right. That's
2: cool. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was that Yeah. Was, yeah, that was probably the big band experience. Of course, that same year, 53, Clipper Brown also did some of his first recording, well, first as a co-leader with Luke Donaldson mm. in June of 53, because Donaldson had heard him and Donaldson told him, you need to come on into New York and let's make some records. Mm-hmm. And so they, they got, well, let's see, who did they get? They got Elmo Hope, Percy Heath, Billy Joe Jones, and, then, and, they, made some, and they made some records. And later on that summer, Clipper did his first one as, as a complete leader mm-hmm. with Gigi Grice, Charlie Rouse, John Lewis, Percy Heath,
0: and I Blakey.
2: Wow. Boy, imagine the
0: cost of those concert tickets today. How about that? If they could do that today. Really? Yeah. Tell us some more about who you played with and and how your career and what you did with your your talents. Well me well most of most of it was just you know, just playing
1: playing with local guys, although I can't Mm. say I've met I've met a few. I met I met a few of them. I even um, I even got courage enough once to show a composition of mine to Herman God, and he liked it. Really? hmm. He right. liked it. He named, well, he liked it enough to, to take it to the rest of the rest of the uh, faculty. And they played
0: it back for the students. Wow, that's nice. great! That's nice, nice. Yeah. people should be honored for their talents and their skills. Mm-hmm. They should be. I would love for you to come back and 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 hit a little, a couple of notes one day. <laughs> well, well, that well, would really be well, great.
1: There's, there's some things. you can you can go on you can go on online and find me. Okay. <laughs> oh, really? Good. How would yeah, we? Yeah, that's well. You know, under well, either under the group, my current group, Keepers of the Flame, or what we were before, Infinity. Mm -hmm. Richard Blackwell did some things. He did a thing with us, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, there's that. Mm -hmm. We did a couple things at the World Cafe Mm -hmm. when I was down there. Mm -hmm. Who are are the members of your band? Well, right now, it's myself, R.E.B.G., the cornet player. Well, basically, he he and I and our bassist Ed Dolly are basically the band, and then mm. we just grab other people right now. Dennis Fortune is working with us. Okay, a young alto player Perry Williams is working with us, and we're and we use either uh, either Kenny Gladney on drums or John Goldie on drums. Okay,
2: all right, some great local
0: musicians. Oh yeah. Are, are there any upcoming events? Uh I'd like you? to come and have a glass of wine and sit and listen to you. And, well, we do
1: have a short set. A short set to do at the um, at the Delaware Art
0: Museum on the twenty third of October. The twenty third of October, the Delaware Art Museum. Yeah, we'll be, Larry yeah,
1: Williams. Yeah, well, yeah, the Keepers of the Flame. Yeah, we'll be we'll just be I guess we're the openers
0: because I think
1: Tony Smith is working there too. Okay, but he'll be doing something a bit later than we will. Okay,
2: okay. And that's right.
0: Keepers of the Flame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Super, wow. Uh, You're listening to WHGE 95.3 FM, the one and only education, advocacy, and information news network here, Black-owned, Black journalists, Black information for Black communities. Thank you for tuning in. Today's interview is with Mr. Larry Williams, and we are highlighting the oral history of the Eastside Pride. All right, all right. Um, of course, a lot of people know about Clifford Brown, especially in the
2: jazz world and mm-hmm. some beyond the jazz world. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Clifford Brown wasn't the only named musician to come out of Wilmington.
1: No, 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 he wasn't. He he wasn't. I mean, you know, Ernie Ernie Watts comes to mind. You know, Ernie, mm-hmm. Watt, Ernie Watts wasn't an East Sider, but Ernie Watts was, you know, was he lived in Wilmington and he's a big name. Lenwood now. A name that a lot of people may not know was the vibraphonist Lem Winchester. Mm -hmm. And Lem Winchester was also a city cop. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he he used to walk the streets of downtown Wilmington. Mm -hmm. He used
0: to keep his his vibes in a club on King Street called the San (laughs) Susie. I I don't know how much this plays into the musical uh, aspect of it, but in just thinking about East Side, in the '60s, you say we could have left our doors open then, and it was very neighborly and communal. Mm-hmm. And so, the problems that we're having today, the issues with policing officers, we didn't go through that then, did we? Or Not, did we? Well, were mean, we friendly officers?
1: It was better than it is now. I'd have to say. Okay, it, it was better. It was better than it is now.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, things. You know, I think things really started to heat up around the time of the 68 riots. Mm, mm, (laughs) That was a a pretty stressful time around town. I bet it was. What was was. was going on in the 68 riots? Well, you know, Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. Oh, yes. And a lot of cities just went, you know, went up like tinder boxes, you know, including Mm -hmm. Mm Wilmington. About four or five Blocks of Jefferson Street burned mm-hmm. down. Wow! I recall because I was I was in the tenth grade then. Hmm. So, you know, that was mm-hmm. yeah, it was, was pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: Now there was something significant about the riots in Wilmington that happened here that didn't happen everywhere else. Um, of course, when the cops couldn't handle the rioters, oh, they. Yeah.
1: They brought in the National Guard.
2: Right.
0: Yes, I remember doing some research on that. And the National Guard stayed in
1: Wilmington longer than it stayed in any other city in the country. Hmm. In fact, the, that, the National Guard didn't leave here until January of 1969.
0: Wow. Why did they stay here so long? Well, from what I've heard, the
1: governor at the time was at Carville.
2: No. Um. Oh, what was his name? Mm. It uh, wasn't Trivet.
1: Oh. No, he comes along a little later.
2: A little later, yeah.
1: Uh, I think Peterson was the governor when they when the, came in when when the guard left.
2: Right, right. Pe- uh, yeah, Peterson was when the guard left. I can't think of this guy's Maybe name. It was what year was Maybe that it was, again? 1968.
1: Yeah, 68. Yeah, well, any, anyway, uh, what I've heard was that Carville had been hearing some rumors that black Black, you know, black people were going to be taking up arms and bringing in guns as soon as the as soon as the um, the, the guard left. Yeah, as mm-hmm. soon as the guard left, so he wouldn't. So he was too scared to let the guard go.
2: Wow, that's crazy. And,
0: and there were a lot of there was a lot of gang warfare going on at that time. In hmm. 1968, the governor was Charles L. Terry. Oh, Charles. Jr. Okay, Charles Terry. Terry.
2: Governor Terry. Terry. Yes, yeah. Terry. Mm.
0: And so and so, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed it. What did <laughs> what did Governor Terry do?
1: Well, he well he kept the guard here because he kept hearing rumors that as soon as the guard left town,
0: that the blacks were going to come in with, with
1: their guns.
0: Yes. <clears throat> so we know how to riot. We know how to protest. We know how to uh, do you know make a stand here mm-hmm. in Wilmington. Uh, that's for sure. But does it did it do any good? Or I mean, why did they eventually pull out? And I know that was some of that was here on the east side. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, Well yeah, some of it was. Yeah, well,
0: it, well, it was all over the city, really. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. it was all over the city. Mm-hmm. And you were in the tenth grade then, so you were mm-hmm. a young man. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I, yeah,
2: I just I won't say old I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: you just slightly behind man. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I think I was like seven
2: years old when that went on. And I do remember the National Guard, you know. Um, now, after the 1968 riot and the Guard left, something that I remember about Wilmington was the uptick in art- artistic endeavors. You know, there mm-hmm. were... Uh what was it? The the King Center had a theater? Yeah. 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 Um Yeah. Of yeah. course did we lose some of the clubs on the east side. Oh
1: yeah, we lost, yeah, we lost yeah, we lost quite a quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. Including the Club Baby right? mm-hmm. yeah. Grand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of in fact a lot of those a lot of those venues just left, you know. Mm-hmm. Like some of the last that I can remember that I used to being like the um, the boardroom that was over on Seventh and Tenth Street mm-hmm. in the early eighties, and Club Ambrosia.
2: Mm-hmm. I on,
0: remember six, that yeah, mm-hmm. Ambrosia on Sixteenth Street.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So why days. did all of the black-owned little speakeasies, and why did we lose the Baby Grand and these uh, properties? Well, John, you know, time
1: it's times changed. You know, mm-hmm. the, the times changed and. Of course, we lo- a lot of the stuff that we lost here in town was due to what they called urban renewal. Mm.
0: <laughs> and, and <that laughs> urban urban re- renewal. And
1: urban renewal knocked out a whole lot of places right here in the east
0: side. Black owned uh, okay. businesses and because I was yeah. of the impression based on something Mr. Harmon told me that there was once upon a time when the east side actually was flourishing we had our own dentists and our own little doctor offices and our own little lawyers. This is true. This is yes. true. This, is true. This, area, this area was home to
1: doctors, lawyers, dentists. Teachers. Teachers. Yeah, they were. They all lived. In, they all lived
0: in. The Some area. of the first black politicians came from right here on the east side. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: louis Rading and people like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the urban renewal is what kind of wiped us out. It took a lot of. Well, it took a lot of homes out. It
1: took a lot of businesses out. You know, even boys, You know, boys used to live over here on the east side.
2: Right. You know, he mm. lived right
1: over. He lived right over here on Pine Street because mm. there was a whole row of houses on the left side of Pine Street.
2: Mm.
1: But Orbit renewal took them out, and then they expanded Bancroft because Bancroft wasn't Bancroft wasn't the, as big as it is now. When I first got there, how about that? You know, it, mm. it was only about as half half of its size. Mm. My graduating class of 1967 was the first one to leave the complete building. Hmm. Hmm. How about that? Yeah, uh-huh. but they knocked that, but they knocked that whole row of houses out, including boys, and So that's why he wound up over on Sixth and Broome Street.
2: Man, that's something. Well, yeah, Sixth and Broom, and I, I, uh, at that time I lived on Fifth and Broom, right around the corner from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and of, course, and of course, I know you probably remember too that part of all of that project was when they when they decided to put I ninety five in, right, and took out
0: half of Adams Street and half of Jackson Street.
2: Wow, man!
0: And those are two; those were two major. East Side streets, if that. Well, actually, they're on the West Side. They're oh, the they're the west, west, west Side. Yeah, I ninety five. The I ninety five goes through the West Side. Yeah. Okay. Mm. My apology. I'm a transplant. I'm still learning my <laughs> my <I'm laughs> navigating. Mm-hmm. I'm navigating through mm-hmm. it, um, and so in in just like thinking about everything that you have told us today, you know, if you could have one one time to come back, what would that be? What would that moment be if you could just recreate that moment in time today? Well, I guess if I
1: was ever going to go back, I'd probably want to go back to maybe that period of somewhere in between bebop and hardbop, Hmm. you know? Hmm. To actually be able to see people like Clifford Brown, mm-hmm. you know, actually performing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because all the only footage of him performing that we have is on Ken Burns' Jazz, right. where he was on the Soupy Sales show. How about that?
0: Wait a minute! I remember, I remember that show. That's he was on a TV show. Soupy Sales. Soupy sales. Yes, right. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Oh my! I'm Which telling my age show.
2: too. <laughs> you know, um, but one of the things I mentioned was. You know, our rich history in music, and I, um, of course, there was, like you said, um, Daisy Winchester, Lim right. Winchester, mm-hmm. uh, of course, Clifford, mm-hmm. okay, and there was also someone famous for the A Betty, um, oh, Betty Rocher, Betty Rochette. yeah, Betty Rocher, yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't mentioned that on the yeah, show before, yeah,
1: Betty Rocher, who grew up right around on
2: 12th Street. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she made the definitive recording uh, yeah. of Day Train.
1: Well, she said, "Yeah, she did the first the first vocal
2: version of it." Okay. You know,
1: uh-huh. on a on a movie on a movie a movie called Beverly with Beverly, which I think came out around nineteen forty three. Mm. But she had all but she did some other work with Duke later on. Mm, okay. And she's also on the on the original Duke's Black, Brown, and Beige. Hmm.
2: Hmm, okay. because he
1: did at Carnegie Hall in that same year.
2: Okay, okay. And there is another well known musician. I was talking about him just yesterday. Um, a lot Gerald, of people may not know. Gerald Price? Gerald Price, yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell us a little about him? Well, well,
1: you know, well, he was a piano player. Already. He, I think he's been, he was better known in Philadelphia because he did a lot of work in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But he, of course, he worked with some big name people. He made records with Mel Jackson, Richie Cole, mm-hmm. Sonny Stitt. You
2: know, mm-hmm. you
1: know, so he he hung with the big boys. Okay,
2: I heard that. I heard that. We also have a Wilmington native that won a Grammy um, for his um, contribution to his boots uh major hit Cisco Kid.
0: Oh yeah Papa D. Allen.
2: Papa D Allen. Yes. <laughs> Papa
0: D. Allen? Yes. Yeah war. Mm-hmm. War yeah, he, yeah he's from here. Yeah. From from right here on the East Side? Yeah. Isn't he from the East Side? I think he was.
2: Yeah, yeah. Papa D. Allen. He was the percussionist mm-hmm. for war. For war.
0: We have so much talent and, and I'll, I'll just include myself in that, even though I'm a transplant, I'll include myself in that. But I'll say you, we, here on the east side, has produced so much talent. So many amazing black people have come from right here on the east side. They may have done small things that made a big difference, or they may have done big things on TV and radio. But Which, whatever they did, I think the pride is in knowing they grew from the east side. East side pride, ladies and gentlemen. There's a reason to be proud of the great roses that grew from concrete here
2: Mm -hmm.
0: in Wilmington, Delaware. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well,
1: this was, of course, this was a place where a lot of black, you know, even back in the day, you know, people were more or less roped off into several sections of the city. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and, and mainly the east side, which were a lot of black folks. Now, I grew up on the south side.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When we first when we first moved over there, the south side had there were a lot of poles Polish people, there mm-hmm. were Italian people. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, there was a mix of people. Mm-hmm. Of course, towards the end of the sixties, it became basically black.
2: black. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And same. Well, there were, of course there were a mix of people on the east
0: side at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it became basically black. You know um this is where this is where our ancestors migrated though right from from and the reason I ask that question is because when I think of Peter Spencer and his movement and his revolution and how people were allowed slaves were actually allowed to come here to Wilmington to celebrate with him for that weekend, in my mind i'm thinking. That even after slavery, people just came here to the east side. This was a safe haven. This was a safe haven. We know that Harriet Tubman came right through the east side with, uh, you know, with the freedom, freedom train. So,
2: the Underground Railroad. The Underground, the underground Railroad.
0: railroad. Mm. So I'm thinking that the east side may have been, I'm asking, was it a safe haven for black people?
1: Well, basically, Delaware was more or less a slave state.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you know, so, you know, and we mentioned in Harriet Tubman, well, in the early days of her trips north, you know, when Philadelphia was the place that you could feel free. Mm-hmm. Delaware was the last place to get through. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're getting through this state to get there. Of course, after after they passed the fusion of slave law, even Philadelphia wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. You had mm-hmm. to keep going till you got across to Canada.
2: How about that? Yeah, that's true. Yes, yeah, indeed. Well, um, of course, you know, my, my focus is always in music. And you had mentioned that your era would be bebop and hardbop. Yeah,
1: bebop and hardbop. Yeah.
2: Um, being a jazz fan, I know the difference between bebop and hard bop.
0: Yeah, but some
2: people who aren't jazz fans won't even know what bebop is and what is. <laughs> so
0: what is explain the it to our, bebop? to our listening audience. <laughs> oh, well, bebop, well, bebop is
1: it's a very virtuosic form. It's, it's virtuoso music. You know? mm-hmm. It was, it's basically music that was rapid tempo. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and explain and you know you were showing off your versatility.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. one thing we had one thing we haven't mentioned is that jazz basically, until bebop came along, jazz was considered dance music. Hmm. hmm, When you went out to hear big bands, you were generally going to a dance hall or a theater. hmm You know, because mm-hmm. and, and you had a lot of big theater. You in the, the Savoy Ballroom in New York? Of course. You know, places like that where you went to, like, say... Uh, like the the Regal Theater in Chicago or someplace like that, you, mm. know, you know, where the, these big places mm. where, the, where the bands played and people could dance. Mm. Bebop comes along. Well, bebop was really listeners' music. Mm. Most of it was too fast to dance to, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. you know if you're you're used to tempos like this right. with Count Basie, you know, and then and then the beboppers are up here somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, that was mm-hmm. a little bit too fast to too to. fast to dance to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now what? Now Hardbop Well, hard bob really was a lot more soulful. Hard tended to reach back into the roots of black music, back to the roots of gospel and blues. Mm. You mm. Know, people like Art Blakey and mm. Hard Silver began to um, put more of that in, into their music. In fact, when people started talking about soul and playing funky in the 60s, mm-hmm. it was jazz people who introduced all. Mm-hmm. Because people like R. Silver and Art Silver, Dart Blake, and all the and Jimmy Smith, and all those people were talking about playing funky and playing with soul mm-hmm. in, back in the late fifties. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, even even funk music itself, you could trace that back to the modal music of the late fifties. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, think of well, let's give you I'll give you a good example. Okay, think about James Brown's Cold Sweat. Okay, you know where that basic horn line came from? Where? So what? How about that? So what? So it's what? It's, yeah. yeah. It's, you know, James up. Molta- da, <performer recall zonder> yeah. <graveyardciamo> <migling> <migling> it's nothing but. How ba- about ba- 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 uh, that? I never realized yeah, that. The, the jazz players really were the ones who started a lot of what
0: we talk
2: about
1: today.
0: <Mustang��
1: Professionalhi> mm-hmm. They don't get credit for
2: it, but they started it. I heard that. I heard that.
0: And it's unfortunate that they don't get the credit and they deserve to have it.
2: Of course. Of course. Um, I think one of the tunes that I termed probably could be considered the first funk tune to me was by Louis Jordan. And that was early in the morning. I don't know if you know that song or not. Oh, I have that record. Okay. I grew up on that record. Okay. Okay.
1: Because yeah. I, I always played the other side. Look out, sisters, look out. Okay. Yeah, I heard that. Well, sir, since you're talking about Louis Jordan, well, Louis Jordan was the first rapper. Hmm, hmm, You know, tell us people, about I mean, that. People, I mean, people think that rap started in the late 70s. Hmm, hmm, you know? hmm. But black folks have been sneaking in rhyme for a long, long time. <laughs> How about that? How about <laughs> that? that? I like the way you said, been
2: sneaking in rhyme for a I long, long I time. I love, yeah, love that. I love
1: that. Louis Jordan was one of the founding fathers of that kind of stuff. Hmm, hmm. You know, beware, brother, beware. Look out, sister, look out. Petting and boating. They're, they're just some of the few of the things that he was doing back then. Mm-hmm. You know, back, mm-hmm. and that was. He was ahead of his time.
2: How about that? Yeah. Did Lewis Jordan ever come to Wilmington?
1: Well yeah, yeah, he did. He he did? Yeah, he yeah, he, he came. In fact, um a niece of his still lives here. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I well I met I met his I met his niece, um, well she when she worked uh, for um uh what's his name's funeral home. Um, bells? No, not bells. Uh, Congo. Congo. Okay. Yeah, okay. Congo. Congo's okay. Congo. Mm-hmm. And uh, happened to me. when well, we um, we had the service for Larry Young. Mm-hmm. And uh, she and his niece came and introduced herself to me and me and Steve. Mm-hmm. We had her as a guest on the radio show. Oh, that's great. You know, yeah. and she showed she showed us a lot of memorabilia, and she pulled out this itinerary. Yeah, his. In fact. Uh, his wife of that at that point, Fleecy <coughs> his wife, Fleecy his then wife, Fleecy Moore,
2: mm-hmm.
1: lived here in Wilmington in the last years of her life. She lived over on twenty seventh or twenty eighth in Washington.
0: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, he just so yeah, Louis Jordan does have some Wilmington connections. Okay. Okay.
2: Gotcha. You
0: speak of radio, what uh, what radio was that, that that you were involved in?
1: Well, still involved in the, the radio station at the University of Delaware, uh, W V U D. I come well. We just we had a hiatus due to COVID, and I just got back in August, and I was doing just one Saturday per month. But now I'll be doing two Saturdays a month. And basically, what we what even Steven and I do is I, we just spin records and talk about the music. And I just I bring my big bag of I bring a big bag of seventy eights and forty fives. They, they they have turntables down there that can spin 78s. And, well, I haven't mentioned my record collection,
0: but I've been collecting for over
1: 50 years.
0: Wow. <laughs> and what time does your show come on Saturdays? It comes on from 8 to 10 in the morning. 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. in it'll the morning, Saturdays. Be, and what's the call be, letters again? W?
1: WVUD 91.3 FM. We're, we're, we're on the last two. I'll be on, on the last two Saturdays of the month. So awesome. This, so this month it will be the 23rd to 30th.
0: Okay, awesome. I'm going to try to tune in for that. Uh, I do a show here on Saturdays at one o'clock, so I cannot miss my show uh, to listen in to yours, but from 8 to 10 a.m. I can certainly do that. And so you are listening to WHGE. Our special guest today is Mr. Larry Williams, saxophonist and radio personality, giving us the oral history of the east side and reasons to be proud. So we thank you for tuning in. We thank you for being here. And as we close up our last uh, our last ten to fifteen minutes of this segment, uh, tell us just close us out with something. Tell us what you which which we haven't asked you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I don't see that give me something.
0: <laughs> let's let's
2: go here. Yeah. Um, early radio. I know that uh, a lot. Of, I don't know if you were around during that time or not. Um, during the time where some of the dances that came out of Wilmington, like the slide, and who was the um, stroll, the stroll, yeah, the stroll, and we had you. Of course, that came out of came out of Wilmington. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, right, right around the seventh, right around the seventh and uh, Walnut. Okay. And with, with Mitch Thomas's dancers. Okay. Now, Mitch Thomas. Who was Mitch Thomas? Well, Mitch Thomas was a big-time radio personality here in, in Wilmington. He worked, I think he was on WILM, mm-hmm. but he was also the MC at Club Baby Grand. Black? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Yeah, his brother? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can hear his, when you listen to the opening of Jimmy Smith's album that was done here, you can hear Mitch Thomas
2: introducing him. Hmm. Hmm. mm Hmm. Okay. Now, uh, Mitch Thomas, of course, uh, wasn't he like the first black radio personality in Wilmington?
1: I think he was because yeah, 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 Maurice Sims did some radio too.
2: Right. Right. And I think Maurice was like the second one yeah, on WILM. B- B- mm,
1: yeah, he was like the second
2: one. Yeah. Yeah. And what uh,
0: year? What era was that? Well, this would be this would be back back I'd say in the fifties. The fifties.
1: Yeah. I say back you know because Mitch also used to host. He used to have dances. In the basement of the or what where the daycare center is today, Seven to Walnut, mm, and mm. Um, and that from what I'm told, that's where the dance the stroll was,
2: what was, originated. was originated. Of the people. They didn't have the,
1: they didn't have a stroll record at that time.
2: How about that? You okay. know
1: what they first danced it to was Bill Doggett's Honky Tonk, mm, <laughs> mm, mm. and then Chuck Willis came out with his version of CC C. Rider, and that that was the stroll record until the Diamonds came out. With,
2: with the Stroll. stroll. Mm-hmm. And
1: a lot of people don't know this, but the gentleman that, that made the um the uh, this, the, the record to, to help the
2: learn to teach them to sing the song mm-hmm. was Brooke Benton. How about that? Yeah, Brooke Benton. Brooke Benton. Now, okay, a lot of people won't know who Brooke Benton is.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. He, yeah, that's true. Well, he was a... He was an R and B slash soul singer from the mid from the mid fifties into into the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, he. he um, I went. You know, when you, people mention him today, the only thing anybody says is "Rainy Night in Georgia." What about Rocket Eighty Eight? Well, what right, that? When Rocket Eighty Eight came out. That was Ike Turner and Jackie Branson. Okay.
2: You know, okay.
1: That was Jackie. That was Jackie, that was Jackie yeah, Well, it was Ike Turner's band.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. but when the record, but but. Uh, Sam Phillips uh, recorded it in, at his studio in Memphis and leased it out to the Chess Brothers in Chicago. How about that? When the record came out, the record said "Rocket 88" by Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats, which didn't sit too well
0: with Ike
2: I bet it didn't. I bet it didn't. <laughs> and this
0: this group that it was written by was from Delaware. No, no. no, 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 no. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Ike Turner was from Mississippi.
2: Right. right. Yes. Yes. Right. But he was a strong early influence, of course. Yes. And um, of course, Rocket 88 is considered the first
1: well some people consider. It. consider it some, some people. people consider it the i have i i have a book that was uh Put out in the late nineties, a book that it's got about fifty tunes in it. That's it's called "What Was the First Rock and Roll Record?" Mm, mm. And it goes back far, much further than Rockin' '88.
2: I heard that. You know, I heard that
1: because because is listed.
2: Caldonia, yeah. Saturday
1: Night Fish Fry is listed. Mm, mm, you know, mm, 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 Winoni mm. Harris's "Good Rockin' Tonight" is in there. Mm, you know, mm, mm, mm. Jimmy Lee's Cadillac Boogie. Well, actually, Cadillac Boogie is where Rockin' '88
2: basically comes from. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that.
0: So I want to chime in, and because this is about the East Side Pride and the oral history um, and all of the beautiful richness that comes from the East Side, uh, I believe you're here because you're a part of that. You're a part of that rich history that we want to honor. Uh, And we want to show you the respect that you have earned, that you're entitled to. And so tell us uh, in our last closing, in our last little bit of closing, tell us a little bit about you specifically coming from the East Side and what would you, what is your vision for the East Side moving forward? I've already asked you, where would you go if you could go back? If we fast forward. What would you like to see happen for the east side? Well, for one thing, I'd like to see it become a bit more neighborly than it is. I heard that. Because like when,
1: we when we were coming up, everybody on the block knew everybody else on the block.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: nowadays I notice if you live on a certain street, the upper end of the neighborhood doesn't know who the, who's living on the lower end. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sad. Yeah, it, it is. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, and it's, I would like. I would like to see more of that. Mm-hmm. You know, because we seem to have gotten away from that mm-hmm. as a, as generally as a people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And say your birthday again for me, please. Well, March twenty seventh, nineteen fifty two. Wow! So you are walking history yourself. <laughs> you have so much knowledge about the music and the culture, uh, and the people and the events that took place here. Uh, I mean, you're just—you are walking history yourself. Some people like to, some people have actually called me
2: that. I heard that. You know, some heard people that.
1: some people actually refer to me as a walking encyclopedia. I would <laughs> I would definitely agree with
2: that. Larry. I would definitely agree with that. That's why I said one of the things that you know, impressed me about you was your, your rich knowledge of the music and what have you. And I, I got to ask you this. Um, you, of course, were around, I think, you know, sort of before August Courtley had kind of died out. Yeah, I think,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah I was, it, when I was coming along, it was a big deal. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So Not so much now. Not so much now, right, because it's no longer... Brilliant. Yeah, they don't Bristol even they don't inside.
1: even celebrate it on French Street anymore, do they? No, they
2: don't. No, they now celebrate it at uh Tullengarrett Park. Tell me Garrett Park now. Yeah.
1: Of course but, French Street too. French Street isn't French Street anymore.
2: How about that? You know, mm-hmm. see
1: that's another thing that urban renewal, renewal did. It closed off a few of our streets,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: Poplar Street got closed. Poplar Street got closed off. Mm-hmm. French Street got closed off. Mm-hmm. You know, you could—I uh, remember when I could walk from South Bridge to Dry Goods going up Fifth Street, but you can't do that now. No, Fifth and Sixth are closed off. Mm-hmm. You know?
2: Yeah, and these were open streets back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like you said, French Street, well, of course, was the center of August Courtney. Mm-hmm. What was the feeling when it was time for August Courtney? I mean, was it an exciting time? And, I
1: think, yeah, I think I think that it was, you know, because uh, well, people were a lot more. I said th- I'd say people embrace religion a lot more than they do today. Mm-hmm. I don't. You see, you know, now you see more questions, and you know, people, you know, not so. It's not that you don't have that same feeling that that people did mm-hmm. back
2: then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, like I said, the August quartering festival was a big deal. I think it stretched from what from all over the east side up to French street mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and from what was it 9th and French sometimes 8th 7th I
0: think yeah.
2: four, five, five, and coffee several blocks
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and, and I was then. I was told in another interview that it was a time of jubilee mm-hmm. people were so happy and it was just it was a time it's like a family reunion mm-hmm. even though you didn't know everybody there but you got to know everyone mm-hmm. that was there it mm-hmm. was like a, having a family reunion mm-hmm. it was a time when Honestly, the August quarterly was truly honored, and, and it, oh, it was just such a big deal. It was it such a, a jubilee, people. I was told. Yeah, it, it brought a lot of people together. Yes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That ordinarily might not have been together. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. How about that? But these are things, you like I said, you don't see much of that right, anymore.
2: anymore. Right. You know? Well, I think that you know people from your era and my era, I was the era behind you, we were very fortunate in that we came up, and what you alluded to, we came up in the village. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and of course, like you said, people were a lot more neighborly. Mm-hmm. People looked out for each other yeah, in the neighborhood yeah, and what have you. Yeah yeah. 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 You couldn't get away with anything. But how about that? How about that? You know? And
0: since I've got you on the show, Pat, even though this isn't particularly just about them, because I really honor these two women for the taxi taxicab. Uh, say their name again, just oh. out of respect.
2: My grandmother and her younger sister, Dorothy Cooper and Janet Cooper. Yes, who were Eastsiders.
0: Eastsiders yes. and yes. powerful women. Yes,
2: indeed. And yes. I just I just were a love lot of that powerful story. Women on the East Side.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh,
2: I think some of the the educators, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some,
1: yeah, some, yeah. some of the teachers were, yeah, they lived in these areas. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, like I
1: said, this was a this, these, this pure, uh, part of the town was loaded with in those days with teachers and doctors and lawyers and tennis and
0: you know, professional mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's so amazing that such a richness. And and a camaraderie of community was was there and together and how we celebrate and religion, uh, our spirituality was very big back then. You know, people came together over God, mm-hmm. and and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so things have changed, uh, but that doesn't mean that that the history will ever change. The history is rich, and and powerful. And uh there's an old African proverb that I'm just going to I'm just going to impart this. Sankofa, you must look back in order to know where you're going moving forward. If you don't know your history, how can you be proud? You did not many of you black, brown, beige, and golden, you did not come here straight from the slave ships and plantations and that's all you were. No. You originated from the greatness of kings and queens and philosophers and and uh, astrologers and, and alchemists and this is the DNA in your blood, the richness of the blackness of who you are. So be proud of your history, but you got to know your history. In order to be proud of it. So we honor you in this show, Eastside Pride, and today's very esteemed guest and absolutely an encyclopedia of knowledge, Mr. Larry Williams. I absolutely cannot thank you enough for being here today. You could have been anywhere, but you came to sit with us and share your oral history. And I thank you
1: for the privilege.
0: Pat, you want to
2: close us out? Where are we? All right. We are at WHGE 95.3D, Education Advocacy Station. Thanks for joining us.
0: And we'll see you right here next week for part two of the oral history with former mayor, uh, Mayor Jim Sills. Take care, everyone. Peace and grace. That's right.